in my reading this morning in John chapter 3 I was reminded of two things first of all Jesus talking to Nicodemus said except a man be born from above he cannot see the kingdom of God and later on John talking about his own ministry said a man can only receive that which is given him from above so both for the person who is doing the ministry of the word which in this particular moment is me preaching and for those of you who are listening we are completely and totally dependent upon God i have no ministry apart from that which is given from heaven and nothing can happen in your life unless it happens from above by the power of the spirit of god so those are two very good reasons to stop and pray so would you join me as we pray together oh god almighty we bow before you you are great you do the work of saving it's your work not ours and so we freely acknowledge this morning that whether it is in the ministry of proclamation or is in in the reception of that word that we are completely and totally dependent upon heaven coming down to touch earth we are dependent upon we desperately seek for and ask for the spirit of god to come to touch both lips that speak and ears that hear we know that the power of men's speech has no power to move the hearts of people and we know that unless you open our ears it, it in a sense just goes from one end to the other out of one year and out the other year without touching us at all just words so i pray that the silence will prove to be a deafening silence father where your voice becomes like the roar of that lion father it becomes like fire in our bones it becomes something that just takes over all of us for our lives as individuals our lives as spouses parents grandparents children brothers and sisters part of the body of christ here and in our various professions I pray therefore that for all of us today you will grant us the faith without which it is impossible to please you the faith without which it is impossible to stand in Jesus name amen The very first time I came to Toronto was also the first time I came to North America and one of the things that fascinated me right away was highways Uh, but of course i could never figure out why they were called expressways and parkways and uh, freeways and the way you know they all seem to be the same thing i went to boston to study i came back 2 years later back to toronto then i had to drive on these highways you know and i still remember my very first trip solo all by myself a little one of those uh, volkswagen bugs you know and i was living in scarborough with a christian family and i had to drive all the way to mississauga where atomic energy of canada was and i remember just always hugging the inside lanes close to the exit ramp so i could get out any time i wanted to well that's all my initial experience with highways now of course it's the other way around i'd much rather drive on a highway than anywhere else you know usually in the snowstorm they tend to be safer spiritual highways have also fascinated me from early on in my christian life almost the first christian song that i heard that really touched my heart was a, a classical rendition of uh, psalm 84 how lovely are your dwelling places one of my father-in-law's friends was a beautiful baritone soloist i remember him singing it and 
in there the psalmist a devout jewish worshiper is uh, thinking about the joyful trips people would make three times a year to jerusalem to worship god at passover at pentecost at the feast of tabernacles and he's talking about how blessed the people are he said blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to zion and from the time i read that image i was really captured by that 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 within my heart can be a highway and a highway speaks of just a direct route to some place zion of course is a place where god's presence dwells and god's people gather in worship and i've always been gripped from that time by the concept that i can have a highway in my heart that gets me quickly speedily to the place where god's people are gathered together in worship it's a picture of that which creates longing within my heart Now of course when the old testament saints talked about highways uh, they were highly unlikely to be talking about these massive structures of steel and reinforced concrete that we drive on they probably meant the main road as opposed to one that was full of potholes in the dirt the issue was not speed but destination that was their main focus so all of that came back to me this past week as i was meditating on isaiah chapter 35 because it talks about a highway too worth while reading all of it to get a picture the wilderness and the dry land shall become glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of carmel and sharon they shall see the glory of the lord the majesty of our god so strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart Be strong fear not behold your god will come with vengeance and with recompense of god he will come and save you then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away it's a beautiful picture first of a desert that is completely transformed into lush vegetation and flowers and then through this transformed desert is a highway only the entrance ramp to this highway doesn't say expressway or freeway or parkway it says holiness it's a holy highway through a transformed desert even more interesting are the people that are journeying on it it's chock a block full of pilgrims but as we kind of scan our eyes from the beginning of this highway to near the end of the highway we see some transformations take place in the highway at various places we see people whose hands are too weak to carry anything whose knees are buckling and they cannot move we see the blind who are stumbling the lame who are limping and then all of a sudden we see them transform we see the lame leaping the blind seeing joyful singing we see sorrow and sighing overtaken by joy and gladness and they're all streaming into zion the temple of god 
resplendent with the visible glory and the majesty of God. Quite an unusual hybrid. But what I was really struck with was verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You know, I was struck by these pictures. It is a picture of so much of our lives. Weak hands. You know, my mother lived with us for a long time and you know, in her 80s, she would pack her food in the fridge in the basement and sometimes we were not around. I'd see her carry, or she'd be carrying by herself. She didn't have enough strength to even carry a casserole. She'd put it down two steps ahead, then walk two steps and pick it up and walk on it. That's feeble hands, you know. Uh, when I think of weak knees, you know, I think of our brother Alan sometimes. I see him, you see him a lot more during the week when he's outside of that scooter with not much strength at times in his hand, knees. Moving forward slow. And anxious hearts, people who are concerned about the future. I'm talking to them all the time. But far from the physical, which is obvious for us to see, this is a picture of how we can be on the spiritual journey at times. No longer able to carry the burdens that God has given to us, whatever they may be. Not much strength to take the next step forward in our walk with God. Anxious about a future that we do not know and cannot figure out. Made only worse by the kind of things that happen around us. As I was thinking about that and meditating on this verse, it was like God was saying to me, when you preach Sunday morning, there will be lots of people like this. If you ask for a show of hands, half your congregation will stand up. And then he said, just tell them. (laughs) Say to these people, your God is coming. Basically God said to me, you can't do anything to fix this, so don't even try But say it. Tell them on my authority, your God is coming to save you. So I am preaching the sermon with a whole degree of anticipation, but not because I have anything clever to say to you. He told me to tell you and I'm going to tell you this morning. All I'm going to do is to paint a picture of this highway and what is awaiting us at the end of this journey. And it is a picture of what awaits you at the end that's going to make you strong today. That's going to take weak hands, feeble knees, anxious hearts, and you will leap for joy. How? I don't know. When? I don't know. But it's going to happen because he said, tell them, I'm coming. Father, give us faith to believe. May we reach out. May we struggle with feeble hands to keep lifting the weight. May we keep shuffling forward with weak knees. May our anxious hearts still invite you to come into them. We believe you that you are coming. To save us. Amen. Now Isaiah's purpose in this message, like throughout the book of Isaiah, has been what? To build faith. Because if we don't stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. The local context for them, of course, was their history for the next 500 years. Assyria was looming large. Soon, relatively soon, historical time speaking... Judah is going to be captured by Babylon. They're going to be in Babylon for 80 years. Then they will come back to the land and rebuild the temple, so to speak. But Persia is still in charge. And then after a very brief period of independence under the Maccabean brothers, the fury of Rome takes over. And that is the condition they're going to be in for the next 500 years or so. And during that time, what was to sustain God's people is, your God will come both with vengeance upon your enemies and to save you. This was what was supposed to sustain them. And by the time of Jesus, 
Jewish hope had crystallized around four essential elements. And they are there in your notes and you may want to just fill them in as we walk through them. First of all, a return to the land and a rebuilt temple. God's people will come back to the land and the temple will be rebuilt in all of its glory. That was one component. Secondly, Yahweh would return to Zion in visible glory. Thirdly, Israel would be rescued from her enemies and exalted by Yahweh to her special position among the nations as chosen by God. And fourthly, Israel's enemies would be punished by Yahweh. This was in essence in one form or another the fourfold Jewish hope that was alive at the time of Jesus. But of course, as we look back from this side of history, we know that none of those things were really fulfilled. In fact, within one generation of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, what he prophesied happened. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was totally razed. Nothing like this happened. And hasn't yet. So was Isaiah lying, mistaken? Are we wasting our time looking at his prophecies? Or were they fulfilled in a way that Israel wasn't anticipating? One key passage is important to help us understand how to look at these prophecies. In Ezekiel chapter 37 is that well-known prophecy of the valley of the dry bones. And we sang about it this morning. The dry bones becoming flesh. You know the picture. A whole valley of dry bones. The wind blows on them. They get all connected, clothed with flesh. Life comes into them. And they rise up a vast army. And Ezekiel tells us that's the people of Israel. And this resurrection, the valley of the dry bones, became a powerful metaphor which captured this hope for Jewish people. The metaphor was the resurrection. What was literal was the return to the land and these four things. Jesus came and turned that understanding exactly 180 degrees on his head. And he said, no, flip it the other way. It's the resurrection that's literal. It's the return from exile that's metaphorical. This is the metaphor. The real fulfillment is Jesus. And that was in Jesus' resurrection that the hope of Israel was finally fulfilled. The end of the exile was the coming of Jesus. Your God will come to save you. Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus came. So that even though Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Even though the temple was ransacked. Messiah had come to his new temple. That was the whole point of Palm Sunday. Deliberately fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. Your king comes to you. The king is coming in Zion. That was all the euphoria of Palm Sunday. Because they thought this was going to happen. But he redefined it all. It happened on Easter Sunday. So come with me to another highway. Another highway with weary pilgrims. <laughs> only the only two of them. Uh, this highway went from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It was on the first Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. And these two men were downcast and hopeless. They'd been talking to each other. About all these amazing things that this man called Jesus had done in the last three years. A prophet mighty in word and deed. Oh, it looks so much like this was going to happen. We had hoped. That's what they said. We had hoped that this was the savior of Israel. But 
He was crucified. All hope was gone. And so they were just reliving these wonderful days gone by. Where they had hoped and now the hope was gone. They were downcast, says the text. Well, Jesus joins himself. To, well, they don't know that he's Jesus. You know. And one of the most ironical passages in scripture, Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? Huh? All about these things. What things? And when they talk about all this, they said, are you the only guy in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? I kind of just laugh. You know, God must have a sense of humor. Tell me. Tell me more. And so they spill out their hearts to him. Oh, we had hoped. We had hoped. And some of our women go to the tomb and they think it's empty. They didn't see him. Then listen to these words. Listen to these words. And he said to them, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. I'd love to have heard him preach through Isaiah, wouldn't you? (laughs) Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly. Saying, stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And then a few verses later, to the rest of the disciples, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Another highway where weary pilgrims are transformed. And notice the transformation. Let me trace four elements in that transformation. First of all, from foolish to instructed minds that could understand the scriptures. So he began, oh foolish people, you don't understand the scriptures. Let me open your mind so you can understand the scriptures. Especially what they have to say about me. That's the first transformation. Secondly, he said, you were slow of heart. And then later they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Slow hearts became burning hearts. And then, of course, initially he said they couldn't see Jesus, didn't know who he was, and then their eyes were opened to see him in his glory in the breaking of bread, from blinded eyes to opened eyes. And then lastly, which is also important, very important, remember they were nearing, it said they were, it was near the end of the day. They'd been walking seven miles. They were tired. What happened after they saw Jesus? They turned around and went all the way back to Jerusalem. Tired, end of the day, tired bodies became energized bodies. Instructed minds, Burning hearts, eyes open to see Jesus, and energized bodies. And what were they before? Tired bodies, hopeless and downcast people. Jesus joined himself and the transformation of Isaiah 35 happened all over again. Before. And because... Because of these instructed minds and burning hearts and energized bodies and eyes that saw Jesus in his glory, they now were given a mission to go and proclaim his name to the ends of the world. They were given power from on high. 
And of course the story ends with Jesus rising to heaven while he was blessing them. So Isaiah 35 really is fulfilled for us in two stages. First in the ministry of the risen Jesus on earth. Accomplishing those precise transformations that Isaiah 35 talked about. And then of course ultimately through our resurrected life in heaven. Because Isaiah 35 is secondarily and just as much a picture of heaven as well. And the New Testament exhorts us to make this a deliberate focus of our lives. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So think with me again just for a few minutes as we recap some of those essential truths we learned two or three years ago when we were thinking about heaven a little bit more specifically. We learned first of all that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' physical bodily resurrection is is a guarantee to us that our bodies will be resurrected as well. That heaven is not for us some non-corporeal spirit ethereal existence, existence, but it's a thoroughly bodily existence. In perfected bodies, imagine all of our bodies perfectly proportioned, every sense heightened, every aptitude, every capacity, every appetite at its best, finely tuned and increasingly so forever and ever after that. And as for heaven itself, it too, Shares in the physicality of the resurrection. For the new heaven is, is joined to a new earth in a marriage of heaven and earth. That's where all the physicality of Isaiah 35 is so important. Remember what he says, the glory of Lebanon, the glory of Carmel and the beauty of Sharon will be given to it. You know, that's a great comfort to me as a photographer. Because there are, I lament the fact that ah, most of the most beautiful places in this world, I'll never ever be able to get to, to shoot them. But as young people are fond of saying, no worries. I'm going to see all their beauties in heaven. (laughs) All the glory of Sharon, of Lebanon, and of Carmel given to it. And in this thoroughly physical union of heaven and earth with gloriously resurrected bodies, we will fulfill for the first time perfectly the Genesis mandate to rule and subdue creation to the benefit of humanity and the glory of God. And we, can you imagine, no unemployment, no underemployment, No termination of employment. And all work thoroughly satisfying. So satisfying that you'll be singing while you work. Heaven will not be just an unending worship service. Although there will be plenty of that. The the joy of Isaiah 35. The joy of uh, Luke 24. The joy of heaven is, is, is the satisfaction of fully and completely doing what we were meant to do from the very beginning. And I got a beautiful picture of this last Saturday. I forget which day it was. Sham was looking after our two older... The boys were here, Matthew and Benjamin. And I was alone with Benjamin for about an hour. And so he, was, he likes to color a lot. So I said, what would you like to do? And he said, I want to do some coloring. So I gave him some blank sheets and his crayons. And, you know, and I was upstairs doing something I could hear him. He was busy coloring and all the time I heard him singing, Great God, who are you that you should... And I just had tears flowing down my head. That's heaven. That's work accompanied by singing. All of us will be doing it all of the time. That's why he says, set your minds on what is above. 
Regularly we need to think about the destination. The people streaming into Zion at the end. Worshipping God in His magnificent glory. You see the reason why this is important. It's not just that we are otherworldly people. You know, you know those famous statements where they say that guy is so heavenly minded that he has no earthly use. It's the other way around folks. We're not of any earthly use because we're not heavenly minded enough. Because according to the scriptures, it is a conviction of this that transforms us now. Future joy is the key to empowering present obedience. Specifically, first of all, in persevering. First and foremost, remember all this transformation that takes place in us. Where foolish minds become instructed minds. Where slow hearts become burning hearts. Where dull eyes become crystal clear to see the glory of God. And where tired bodies are energized. It's not just so we can sit back and have a nice time. It is so we are involved in mission. That's the context of Luke 24. And perseverance in ministry is critical. In his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which many of you have read, Peterson says this is worthwhile reminding ourselves of. This world is no friend to grace. A person who makes a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior does not find a crowd immediately forming to applaud the decision. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope and corrupts love. But it is hard to put our finger on what is wrong. One aspect of world that I have been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. The persons among whom I lead in worship, console, visit, pray, preach and teach want shortcuts. They are impatient for results. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. Frederick Nietzsche once wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. Thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. It is this long obedience in the same direction which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. And that's what this focus on heaven, where the highway is going to end, helps us. Twice in this section, in Isaiah 35, we are told the pilgrims are walking. They are not driving on this highway. They're walking. It's slow, slow progress. With weak hands and buckling knees and anxious hearts, we keep moving. Very slowly, we keep moving. We are meant to walk. And it is this picture of what awaits us the end that sustains us and is intended to keep us moving. We are told that Jesus did it that way. We are in the middle of Lent right now. That season uh, that helps us to focus on His passion. And his suffering. The time he set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. And all the suffering that was coming. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. What sustained Jesus on this road. Was what was awaiting him. And the apostle Paul said the same thing. Talking about. I mean he had a more difficult ministry than anybody had. In fact Jesus told him right at the outset. I have chosen him that he might suffer many things for my sake. I mean, this guy was beaten with rods, lashed three times, probably 39 lashes each time, shipwrecked, out in the cold, new hunger. Read Second Corinthians, you'll get a sense of what he went through. And yet, this is what he writes in that passage. <clears throat> so we do not lose heart in ministry. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. I mean, how did Paul ever survive? This is how he survived. You know what he says? He says this light and momentary affliction. Now, some modern day psychologists would, would label this man a weird guy. They say, oh, this man's living in denial. How dare he call what he's gone through light and momentary? When he's been lashed and beaten and shipwrecked and fasted and all that. Yeah, I think they might have a good case for it, right? But Paul's making another point altogether. He's not denying the reality of the pain. He just said there's something so weighty on the other side that it feels like to me. He said these light and momentary afflictions, real though they are, it's almost as if they were on one side of this balance and bang on the other side, God has plonked down something so heavy with glory. He says it is both. This is light and momentary because this is eternal and weighty. That's the point he's making. And even more than that, he says something else. He's, he's not just saying, oh yeah, these are all hard, but one day I'm going to forget all about them because of the glory. He's not just saying that. He's actually saying something much more. He said these things are actually preparing and the word in the original language is working. What Paul is saying is more than just I'll forget about this. He said this is the very stuff out of which the weighted glory in the future is being prepared for. So he said the harder my labors here, the heavier the glory at the other end. The longer they last here, eternally it will be that characteristic. The two are connected. That's why he's able to survive. And while you and I don't have anything as spectacular as that to survive, I've certainly I've been in doing ministry of some kind for 47 years and 31 years here. I haven't been lashed and beaten. I know no suffering at all as a matter of fact. But I've got to walk slowly just like you on that same highway. The hands get tired, the knees buckle once in a while. My heart, my heart can get anxious. Paul says it's exactly the same principle. Notice verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. That's just the last way. So why, why should you... And the, the words are simple. Steadfast, stand firm. You be convinced. Immovable, don't shake from your convictions. Abound in the work of the Lord. Don't give it grudgingly. Don't just eke out a little bit of service. Serve abundantly. Serve always abundantly. Why? Because you know one thing. Because you know that this work is not in vain. Because it too is working an eternal weight of glory. It's true for a preacher. It's true for people who are parking lot attendants. It's true for people who serve food on Tuesdays in the neighborhood connections ministry. It is true for deacons and board members. It is true for Sunday school teachers and youth ministry leaders. It is true for all of us. And the word labor specifically is a word that means involving some hardship and difficulty. And Paul is saying, don't quit, don't give up, don't just give a little bit. Give always as much as you can as Christ energizes your bodies and burns your heart with his word as he opens your eyes to see the glory of Jesus. He said, it is working for you an eternal weight of glory. We've got to believe this. 
Why would I come back and preach a second time and then a third time and then get on the plane and go to India on Tuesday to preach 16 times in the next 20 days? Why does Pastor Susanna go and have an unbelievable schedule in Siberia and all these places? Why? And this past week, Pastor Wayne, who normally has Thursdays off, I saw him at work on Thursday. I said, hey, Wayne, how come you're on Thursday? He said, well, I'm taking tomorrow off. Well, tomorrow got rewritten by, by pastoral needs. And then he was here yesterday from 6 in the morning till 8.30 at night. Why? Because we believe our labor is not in vain. And if we did, then we would feel the joy. Oh, it is working. Every fatigued step forward is working for me an eternal weight of glory. If you don't believe this, plead with God to open your eyes. I plead with Him every day that I might believe this and see it. Why would anybody do anything that we do as Christians if this were not true? That's why Paul says we are of all men most miserable if this isn't true. There's a second thing. Not only is this uh, future glory empowers present obedience in persevering ministry, it's also true when it comes to holy living. So this is an interesting highway, right? Because it's called the highway of holiness. He says the unclean shall not live. Go there. But the amazing thing about this is that this highway has got people leaping and walking and singing and praising God. You don't normally associate that kind of behavior with holiness, right? Because the lie of the world is the exact opposite. What does the world say to us? You have these choices. You can either believe what the world says, that's vitality, life, strength, joy, excitement, or you can live a boring Christian holy life, right? Oh, young people, please don't believe that lie. Because exactly the opposite is true. Of course, sin is attractive. Therein lies its power. But in the, ult- in the final analysis, it is sin that it has no variety. It's ultimately all the same stuff. It's all boring. You've seen one sitcom, you've seen them all. I mean, how many more jokes can you have about with sexual innuendos? It is unbelievably boring. And I remember C.S. Lewis, I couldn't place it somewhere. He'd written about this, but, so I thought I'd better go find out on the internet. Instead, I couldn't find Lewis, but I found somebody that I'd never heard of before, a Roman Catholic priest by the name of pa, a Friar Dwight Longnecker, and he said it so beautifully. He said this, The lie of the devil is that sin is endlessly creative and fun, whereas goodness is boring. Quite the opposite. Sin is boring. There is nothing original or creative about sin. It is unoriginal and dull and repetitive. On the other hand, there are endless ways to be creative and original and positive and pure and good. Each saint is a totally unique and wonderful creature. Each sinner is incredibly dull and predictable. Be assured one of the greatest torments of hell is that it will be repetitious and boring. It will be so mind-bogglingly boring that it will literally bore you to tears. Heaven, on the other hand, will be endlessly, amazingly creative and positive and good and pure. So, not only does every act of labor working an eternal weight of glory, so does every step and every decision to be holy in this world. Every commitment to holiness of thought and action and purity is working an eternal weight of glory. 
That's what sustains faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in relationships, faithfulness in the covenant that we make with our eyes and what to see to be authentic men and authentic women. That's what will sustain us. Because each of those steps, each of those decisions is working an eternal weight of glory. One last comment about this highway and with that we are finished. When I had to drive, because of the distance that I lived from where I worked, I had to use the highways, right? So I, uh, and for that, you've got to get on the on-ramp. That was a big problem for me because, you see, when you get onto the on-ramp on the highway, you have all these things just whizzing by. What's your natural tendency? Slow down, right? You want to hit the brakes. Of course, that's, that's total disaster. Because if you ever want those things to slow down, you have to speed up. So what I had to learn to do on the ramp, and my brother-in-law was teaching me, I was saying, hit the gas pedal, speed up. And everything within me didn't want to do it. But when I finally mustered up enough courage to do it, I said, amazingly, these things aren't going as fast, fast anymore. I have lots of space to get between them, right? So, that's the last little point. You can't avoid the on-ramp. Okay? You're going to travel on this highway, you're going to have to get on the ramp. And uh, Isaiah ends by talking about this when he says, only the redeemed and the ransomed will walk on it. Only the redeemed of the Lord will walk on it. Only the ransomed will get to travel. What, who are the redeemed and who are the ransomed? You see, there's no other people that get on this highway. You're not going to get to that glorious destination if you don't get on the highway. And the only way you're going to get on the highway is to become one of the redeemed of the ransomed. The word redemption is the language of the slave market. It was basically language that was used to describe when a merciful man would find a slave who was on for public auction, who he would buy him or her and then give them their freedom. That's redeeming somebody out of the slave market. Ransom, on the other hand, was language of the military and, and wartime, where an opposing leader or a king was captured and held for ransom, meaning you pay me so much money. In both cases, it was a matter of setting somebody who was bound and captive free by the paying of a price. In our natural condition, all of us as human beings are not qualified to get on this highway. We are in fact bound in our sin and held captive by the enemy. And we're headed on another highway. We got there by default. That's our natural condition. Headed into that direction of eternal boredom. Where the one thing that is absent is the glory of God. And it was Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus who endured all the suffering that we are thinking about during Lent. He did it in order to pay the ransom price. He did it in order to break the bondage of sin in our lives. And so the only way you get onto this on-ramp to travel this highway is by receiving that offer. And there might be some of you here, maybe even one, two, I don't know you, I don't know your hearts, but you know yours, who truth to tell would say, gosh, I've never got on the highway to begin with. I've seen the signs. But redemption, ransom. Well, if so, today is the day to begin. There are pastors here, elders here, who are available to help you. And if a prospect of the end that I've painted for you is at all enticing, you want to get on the highway. 
You want to become part of the company of the redeemed and the ransomed through faith in Jesus' death and in His resurrection, which is the only guarantee of the resurrected bodies and the gloriously resurrected earth in which we accomplish this mission that is so exciting that we sing while we work. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the very act of telling, you will accomplish that work of faith that only you can. You will come to save. Save both those that need to get on the highway and save the ran- continue saving the ransomed and the redeemed. Capture our hearts with this vision of the future joy that encourages both growth in holiness and perseverance in ministry. In Jesus' name. Over this next week or so, we'll all be traveling on highways. Only these ones will be concrete ones, you know. I'll be on a tarmac for a little while. And then going to a very different kind of road where nobody moves fast. Because there's so much traffic everywhere, you know. But wherever you are, may every on-ramp just remind you again. That there's somebody who might join himself to you unexpectedly on that journey. So travel with expectation that slow hearts might become burning hearts. That foolish minds might become instructed minds. That end of the day tired bodies might suddenly get energized. And you get envisioned all over again for mission in Jesus' name. And that you might end your journey blessed. Go in Jesus' name.